0: This is Writing Lives, Biography and Beyond, a podcast by the Oxford Centre for Life Writing. I'm Catherine Collins. And I'm Kate Kennedy. Join us as we talk to leading biographers and academics about every aspect of life writing. Today, we're joined by Helena Attlee and Sophie Roberts, who've both written extraordinary books which follow the lives of musical instruments. Helena's book is called Lev's Violin and follows her journey to trace the provenance and history of a particular violin. She travels through Italy and beyond, discovering the object's history and the wider history of European luthiers. And Sophie's book is called The Lost Pianos of Siberia, and is part travel writing, part object history, as she travels all across Eastern Europe and Russia, tracking down old pianos. So I want to put them together today to think about how we can tell life stories through instruments and what the rewards and limits of this approach are. So I wonder if I could just both ask you both really what what inspired these these projects. Helena, tell me tell me a bit about Lev's violin, how it all began. Hmm.
1: Well, it began on a summer night when I went to a gig. I went to a gig in the little town where I live on the Welsh borders. And it was a a band called Moishe's Bagel. And they were playing klezmer. And I was sitting in the front row when the fiddle player stepped to the front of the stage and started to play on his own. And the impact of that sound was quite extraordinary. It really felt as if the violin was speaking to me and reaching parts of me that, that I didn't know existed. Um, and I'd gone to that concert with, with a friend who was in her mid, probably late 80s at that point. And as the light came, lights came up, She turned to me with the most enormous grin on her face and said, darling, how dare he speak to us like that? We're married women. (laughs) And I thought, well, you know, I'm not the only one who feels that this sound is is seeking me out. That's when I got the first stage, if you like, in getting hooked. That wouldn't have been quite enough, but it was the beginning.
0: It's, It's something like a love story between you and a violin, really,
1: isn't it? It is a bit, yes. I sometimes wonder if it sounds like one of those love-at-first-sight, you know, rather unbelievable stories. But there were many more hooks in that story for me because it was when I went outside, the fiddle player was just standing outside. And so to make him laugh, really, I went up and told him what my friend Rhoda had said about his fiddle expecting him to laugh. You know, that's the only reason I told him. And he just launched himself into an account of the violin. He said it came from Cremona in Italy. And he also said that it was absolutely worthless. And there were there were lots of things in there to intrigue me, mm. partly that it came from Cremona because Italy is my subject very often for my writing. Um, and I didn't know... I mean, it's something that I find so interesting about your book, Sophie. You know, we're both non-musicians who've put ourselves in this awkward position of writing about music, really. Um, I wouldn't have felt that I had any qualifications at all to write, but it was an Italian violin. I knew that Stradivarius violins came from Cremona, but this guy said his violin, he'd been told it was worthless, and the disparity between those two claims and the idea that an instrument that had had that impact on me could have no monetary value um, fascinated me. It's a, a provocation to write, really, isn't it? To it was a it, provocation. Exploring what worthless means. It's how can it be worthless? Exactly. And, and, yes, what sort of values value system does it occupy if it's considered worthless? That intrigued me.
0: Mm. And it's taken you on a journey across the world and in imagination to all sorts of different times and places.
1: Yes, it has. I mean, I think um, there was also a kind of grounding in my, my life, something that was going on at the same time that my mother had died quite recently. And I'd found myself a sort of awash in um, objects that had belonged to her. And that needed to, we needed to think what we were going to do with them, you know, who Mm -hmm. was going to keep what. And I realized in that process that an awful lot of those objects had stories that I had been told, I suppose, on and off ever since I was a child. You know, and they weren't grand things, but everything has a story. And I realized that I couldn't remember. <laughs> Half of these stories, or I remembered a bit of them. And I think as I learned more about Lev's violin, the the idea of an object that kept its story bound to itself in that way and was sort of riding on its story in a sense, was very appealing. And it reminded I, sort of my behaviour in a way reminded me of I, I've sometimes seen people who get divorced, and they're sort of incredibly, incredibly nice. They might marry, the next person they marry might be absolutely horrible, but they're incredibly nice to him or her because they were so nasty to their last spouse. And I feel, <laughs> you know, Lev's Violin, I was incredibly, um, I had high regard for its story, and I wanted to preserve it and make sure it was never lost in a way that I should have done for all those other things but hadn't.
0: Oh, so it's an act of reparation that you you yeah. attach meaning and create stories around an object that isn't one that's part of your your heritage. That's really interesting. Exactly. That that metaphor of the marriage, because that's something that crops up particularly with string instruments a lot. That mm. a cello or a violin is a spouse or a partner, and you know, or, or, or the wife of the the player or a husband mm. of the player describes mm. the relationship as being you know, three people in the marriage, and one of them's a violin. Mm. I don't know, Sophie, if you found this with pianos, can you marry a piano? I would t- 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 Tell us how, how your journey across Siberia on the, on the hunt for a specific
2: piano began. Well, rather curiously, it began in Mongolia um, rather than Siberia. And like Helena's book, in um, On a Summer Night, where I was staying with some friends and we were in the Mongolian steppe a long way from the city, Ulaanbaatar, and I was listening to a young pianist um, who trained in Italy um, who'd come back to be back with her in her homeland And she was spending the summer giving some recitals and teaching music to some of the Herder children on a slightly, uh, well, it had seen better days, Yamaha Baby Grand. And um, it was a kind of slightly curious collection of people that night. There was probably 20 of us in this kind of felt rimmed gear. So you can imagine the acoustics are just perfect. There's absolutely no road noise. There's the starry sky above, Um, listening to the performance to Candlelight and a wood fire burning and she starts to play in the room we have a sort of champion archer a bone setter a shaman it was a very eclectic group of people and uh, she started to play. And um, like Helena, I felt deeply affected by it. I couldn't work it out because music had never touched me like that. I've always enjoyed it, but I don't play. I'm not a musician myself. But maybe when you don't know much about music, it gives you more space to kind of read into the feeling. Um, I didn't hear the faults in her playing. I just heard the kind of the passion and the grief, and I found it really deeply compelling. Um, The friend I was with, who had helped her with her career, and in fact, was the reason why she was in that tent playing that night. Um, he'd helped support her in Italy through eight years of training, musical training. He, when I said I'd never heard anything so beautiful, he leant over to me and said, no, 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 that piano is not good enough for her. Um, you must find her. And he used this phrase, one of the lost pianos of Siberia. And that phrase was so odd to me. And so brilliant in its oddness that um, it kind of snagged, snagged like a burr. And off, off I went to see whether there was any reason in it. Of course, there was. He's a um, somebody of German descent. He knew the piano's story in Siberia and Russia, which begins with the German piano makers. So through my hunt for an instrument for this young and brilliant Mongolian position, a piano better suited for her talent, I was sent off on a hunt through a large and extraordinary territory which actually revealed uh, the history of the instrument in a place you didn't expect to find it but um, it also revealed this deep regard high regard um, for story and for music Um, and it didn't matter that the instrument to maybe a very highly trained musician was I love your phrase worthless my god it carried so much passion and meaning and family and love and loss and tragedy that it could express a kind of a story and an emotional intelligence which maybe politics can't always accommodate maybe straight journalism can't always accommodate it became for me a passport into people's homes there
0: is something so public and yet so private and domestic about an instrument, isn't there? It's it's the thing that you have your most intimate relationship with. As I said, there, there is a kind of marriage between a player and an instrument, and yet there you are on a concert hall platform or um, outdoors in Mongolia in the in the steppe, They're in front of hundreds thousands of people, and so there is this kind of dual identity of of the way in which we ascribe meaning to an instrument and the relationships we have to it, which I believe could never make an instrument worthless. Of course, there is the the obvious prosaic monetary value, but there is so, so much worth that can be built around an instrument emotionally and in terms of its history. And I suppose this is the thing that I find particularly fascinating in both your books, that that an instrument is defined by its story. And of course, when we are writing lives, we are storytelling. We are creating a history and a context against which we can understand the lives we're interested in. And these instruments carry stories. They're a portal into people's homes. They're a portal into different societies, into different time periods, different ways of life, different individual stories. But their relationship to their story shifts as well, doesn't it? You can have an instrument that has no label in it, that has no traceable maker, if it's separated from its story, it becomes a different thing. And I wonder how, you know, that's not really a question, that's amusing, but I, w- I wonder how that struck both of you because so much of what you're doing is trying to fix a story or find a story or narrate a story around an instrument with the instrument as the
1: jumping-off point. I think for me, um, the whole the whole thing of story is the whole point of the book, in the sense, and and whether whether what matters about a, an, an instrument is, is, is what it really is or what, he, what we believe it to be. Um, I'm sure it's the same with pianos. Labels matter. Labels matter an awful lot to instrument dealers. They matter to the hedge fund managers, the foundations, the bankers who want to invest their money in something that won't lose value Whatever happens to the stock market, um, they're made to matter, I think, to musicians. I think young musicians in the world of strings are told, you know you really need to get an old Italian violin if you're going to have a career. Um, and so
2: and some sometimes when story is lost, there is meaning in that, isn't there? Yeah. It's so, you know, that what is absent, therefore, becomes the story. And I took great comfort from um, Edmund Waal, and the Hair with Amber Eyes, I think, um, does this brilliantly of telling a tale through an object through the Netsuki. But he said, you know, objects have always been carried, sold, bartered, stolen, retrieved, and lost. People have always given gifts. It's how you tell their stories that matters. Now, I took enormous, enormous confidence in the stolen and lost. (laughs) (laughs) Because in Siberia, in Russia, where so much of history is wiped, so much is forgotten, so much is undocumented, so many lives have disappeared with that record, that what is missing became meaning. So if you like, I think there are two ways always to see. The discovery of a story was like magic. The discovery of provenance was, was like gold. Um, even after my book is finished, I had, a, I had correspondence two weeks ago from somebody in Germany who, is, who thinks there's a link between a very important piano in my book and her family who suffered during the war. And so the story is still, it's still building, it's still catching, it's still trying to find its roots again, even after I've long finished the book. But the ones that are lost, the ones that have the provenance has gone completely, it says so much about what happened in Stalin's Gulag. It said so much about what happened during the SARS system when more than a million people went to Siberia under that SARS exile system. So I think one can take comfort in not always having to sew up all the missing pieces as a storyteller
0: yeah absolutely and and if you had been able to sew them all up as you say you wouldn't have been doing justice to the spaces and the, the the tragedy of those spaces in in Siberia's history would you it's pinning it all down and and tying it all together wouldn't have been representative of the kind of story you're telling it's about silences and absences and and and, disappearances and and that's the wonderful thing about instruments is that those gaps, the gaps in understanding the provenance or the, the mysteries about the stories can be an opportunity for for the imagination, for the life writer. It, it offers us spaces that we can fill ourselves. And, and you both do that so beautifully.
1: I, I had a sense of holding the story, of having been given the story and, and kind of making a pact with it that I would follow it wherever it seemed to lead. And... Um, that's so why I love Sophie's book. You know, we're bonkers, Sophie. Absolutely bonkers.
0: You do set yourself challenges. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever think a nice, a nice cradle to grave biography with it, with a good exactly. ordered archive, would
2: exactly. be appealing? No. Well, originally, originally I wrote a cradle to grave travel book, Did and you really? I wrote. Yes, I, I mean the whole process of writing writing mine was was just a huge lesson in um, in rewriting because I mm. I started in the Ural Mountains, which is on the um, western edge of Siberia, and I finished in the Pacific, um, which is on the eastern edge of that territory. And I did what all travel writers do: I finish I start at A and I finish in Z. And I filed the book on deadline. I was very pleased um, with that. And my American editor, a brilliant guy, Morgan Edgkin at Grove Atlantic, he said, "Thanks very much for the first. Now rewrite it um, oh, no. according to the history of the instrument. So rewrite it according to the narrative arc of when the piano first enters Russian culture or Siberian culture until the modern day, and you will completely disrupt the travel um genre as as you're used to it and you'll come up with a more original book and I think that it was it was a painful week of of, of looking at how those chapters were going to look on my kitchen table and I think he was absolutely right that's an inspired
0: steer from uh <laughs> and and would take some kind of leap of confidence to to unpick a book that's been submitted but mm. I, I was gonna say I mean it's it's fascinating reading it because you Helena, you're following one violin, but it opens up whole worlds. But Sophie is following any number of different pianos oh, and stumbling across oh, them and failing yeah. to find them and, and unearthing all sorts of other instruments along the way. And how on earth i was in awe as i was reading it as to how you structure something like that and it's fascinating that that was the process because there's no sense of that it feels like it couldn't have been any other way that it has that wonderful inevitability about it that a that a well structured book ought to have and but it must have been quite a challenge to work out how how you don't just jumble us across an enormous geographical area across different centuries with a whole load of pianos that we may or may not know something about and that it could be chaos couldn't it and it's and it yeah, is yeah, no, it was chaos
2: it was total chaos <laughs> <laughs> that's the nature and I'm sure Helena agrees. that's the nature of the obsession it's total chaos yeah, but it is yeah. um you know it, it's the power of a really good editor and I speak the same of my um editor at Transworld you know they got behind they got behind this rewrite in a in a major way and they were right they were right and sometimes, you know, when you're in the thick of it and, you know, if I have one regret, I wish I'd given myself more time, more time, Really? because I loved that. I loved the process. I loved this. I loved the act of travel. I loved the the research. I loved the fact that um, every piano had a story and I kept, could have kept on going for a lot longer. But um, structurally, an outsider can see things you can't see for yourself. And, you know, if there was one lesson I took from this, it's the power of, of I was lucky. I had two two brilliant editors. And
0: I think that also there is something very particular about this writing through an instrument as a portal that is terrifying. But, a, a, but if you can pull it off, it's a wonderful opportunity because you can telescope time and you can cross any amount of physical distance and you can imagine stories that may or may not be true of the instrument in a way that I, it would be very hard to do that with people wouldn't it and either it, either this happened mm. to someone or it didn't it's mm. it's a very mm. specific and kind of difficult to difficult to pin down way of approaching biography but but wonderful I think
1: yeah I think there are moments when um I think this is probably more for me than you sophie but I felt very I felt acutely uncomfortable when I suddenly found myself confronting... Holocaust Mm. and thinking well I don't actually have evidence that this violin you know went went through Germany at that was in Germany at that time this happened to it but on the other hand when I turned the lens of violins onto the second world war what it revealed was so extraordinary. It was such an extraordinary, and I think this is the thing about objects, you know, that give you an angle yeah. on a subject that's very well known, but they're so specific um, that it felt. I just felt I had to, I had to set it down, really. Um, yeah, you know, but but with all those feelings of discomfort, that this isn't my history, you know, this isn't my history, and here I am doing it again, and it's been done before, but. Eventually feeling confident that there was something slightly different happening. Yeah. yeah.
2: In a way, it not being your history or my history, um, this that for me, certainly this this object gave me um, a neutral space where I could search and hopefully find empathy. And that was incredibly important. You know, I turned up in Russia, Putin's Russia as a British journalist at a time when Putin is on the cover of The Economist with the devil's red eyes, you know, and I'm knocking on the door of a stranger and I very, very, very rarely met a Siberian who wasn't voting for Putin. So you can imagine it's I'm going into a completely opposite world, but I'm knocking on the door saying, look, I'm an English writer and I'm looking for a piano and something has led me here. And uh, that created neutrality because we both had a shared interest in this thing called music. And that immediately opened doors. And then once you're in that space, you can let the music fill before words. You can, you can listen. You can talk about that instrument before words, before any judgment is made. And that, again, just created this kind of neutral zone where bit by bit I could step into the, the dangerous areas of Gulag history, of um, of terrible suffering in the Second World War, whatever it was, but the piano definitely was the was the thing that held my hand and theirs as we went into that that very difficult space. Um, I felt there were moments when I was trespassing too far. Um certainly up in Colymar, which was the worst of the worst of the kind of gulag story. But again, the absence became the meaning.
1: Mm.
2: And I struggled, you know, I, I some of the responses, oh, there's you know, I go to places where there are no pianos, where there is nothing left. Why does a story have to be marked by success? You know that I felt very strongly that we've kind of been brought up in this kind of Hollywood storytelling universe where there's always a resolution. No resolution says so much about the suffering in that place yeah. than trying to find one. Yeah, and again, you know, it's a. There was a brilliant thing if of um, John Steinbeck. I, I was reading a lot of other writers tried to sort of you know work work in that part of the world as an outsider and as somebody from kind of you know Western culture. And John Steinbeck, he went there with the photographer Robert Kappa, just after the Second World War, world War. and he said. We made our plans in this way. If we could do it, it'd be good and a good story. And if we couldn't do it, we'd have a story too, the story of not being able to do it. And again, it's like I was taking great comfort in, let just make the attempt. No one else is looking for pianos in Siberia. No one else is looking for Lev's violin. Make the attempt and see what comes back because there's always more story than we think, even in what is missing.
1: Hmm. I think you're absolutely right, Sophie. But it can you know, there are moments certainly when I wondered what what I was doing really. I felt that I I was I was undertaking things on behalf of Lev's Violin. It remind it's odd, actually we, we um Greg Lawson, who the violin belongs to now, um, refers to living with Lev's Violin as like living with an an old aunt or an uh, an old uncle and you know he'd sort of say to the violin you know come on we've got to go to work and the uncle would say no I just want to sit here you know come on it's time to get up no I'm fine I'm just staying here and it felt to me um my relationship I did things for that violin's story that you know I wouldn't have done for anybody else except possibly an elderly <laughs> relation who asked you a favour you know you feel you have to do it that's a, that's a wonderfully
0: odd quirky take on the the responsibility we feel we have to our subject as biographers isn't it I, I've yeah. just yeah. finished a biography of somebody who spent the majority of his adult life locked in a mental hospital and wasn't able to to get the manuscripts of music and poetry out that that he should have done so I I've feel in some way very very loosely that I have some kind of moral responsibility to be able to speak for him and to enable his voice to be heard si- yes. you know, situated in a in a correct sympathetic context and you're you're kind of giving voice to an instrument and 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 Sophie mm. is as well or, or at least articulating their stories or holding together a, a bunch of stories in order to to shape a context for them which, mm. uh, as mm. you say, you end up you end up doing all sorts of extraordinary things that you, would be a huge hassle if any living human asked you to do, and uh, and yes. sometimes it, somehow that's okay. <laughs> it's, yes. uh, it's it's amazing what you'll do for an instrument. Yeah, it is. It is. But I'm fascinated with this idea, Sophie, that that you could go in with with music as your calling card, in a sense uh there's this sort of irritating but probably as cliches tend to be true cliche that music is a universal language and and i i always find that a bit annoying but actually in a in a sense you are both trading on that or using that or ha- using that as an opportunity in in the way that you're building relationships as you go because these these are journeys and they are they are us observing you forming bonds and finding people along the way and gaining information and and relating to people. And it is, it is significant, isn't it? That both of you do that through music.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, a lot of really good books have been written by really good travel writers about Siberia. So I had nothing much to add to that, that canon. It was, it was, I, I, this was way, you know, it was a phrase that led to some historical truth that led to an obsession uh, that definitely was underpinned by what you talk about as a kind of moral compulsion. It was like these stories are going to disappear if I don't tell them. And there was one guy I met in a place called Sakhalin Island, which was where Chekhov went in the late 1890s to sort of investigate Um, the Tsarist exile system and he you know he went out of moral compulsion he managed to conceal his motives in lots of strange and curious ways but effectively he wanted to show how horrific it was and when I met this local guy he was just a local kind of historian called Smekalov he he we talked about all the horror we went to the places where that took place you know the place where the wheelbarrow men were strapped they were chained to their wheelbarrows day and night for the rest of their lives until they died he showed me the place where the public hangings took place he went right into the depths of the horror but he also said to me he said it's essential to restore some of this island's history some of Sakhalin's history to show that heroes existed and then the whole conversation turned around this young woman who was a brilliant pianist um, trained under Rubenstein, whose husband had murdered someone, and she went with him to Sakhalin Island. And that story suddenly opened up layer and layer and layer. It's like I'm peeling the onion until he just couldn't stop crying. I mean, it was just extraordinary. But that was a story of a hero. It was a story of a, of a, of a very, very brave woman. And so... I think that there are those stages as you start to go in and look and go beneath the surface. And that was the power to me of the instrument. If I did not have the piano, I would never have got to that story.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and as uh, sort of bringing it all together, you know, it's the, the music is able to to reach people in a way that words, particularly perhaps when you're working through a translator, or, you know, the, the self-consciousness of language and words and the, the general suspicion of what on earth are you are doing out there? You know, it can be a barrier. Whereas, whereas music, just isn't um but much more than all those other books about Siberia this is this is wonderful wonderful evocative travel writing but it's also people writing isn't it you are you are about the stories of these people and the way they relate to their instruments and how you can use the instrument as a as a means through which you can tell their stories and and find those heroes and and you know, how you know how how any other travel book could link a piano to men ch- chained to wheelbarrows and that's that's quite a leap. and yet somehow your your piano is able to to maneuver between all these different stories and these different lives and and give us the, the texture of of these extraordinary existences in this desperately bleak and difficult but very beautiful place. and just tell me a little bit more about how how place is so important to this book.
2: Well, for me, I there were times where I wish I was I was writing about a violin because the 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 thing about piano that I suppose uh, uh, resonated in that in that place was the absurdity of it. You know, this is uh, Siberia until the you know early. Um, 20th century didn't have a railroad. Um, So any instrument that was coming into that part of the world across 5,000 miles of of really brutal territory was taken in by sledge um, 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 in winter because at least the ground was frozen and it wasn't just deep mud. Um, so who, who on earth had such an affection for their instrument that they would, they would put it through that, especially when um, luggage was um, kept to a bare minimum, if you were a, an exile? Or if you were the wife of a of of an explorer or whomever it is, you know it's like it was such an absurd thing to take a piano into that territory. So that that appealed to me um, definitely, Um, and it it created a a reason to explore place. Um, I, I I was in a way. At my most excited When I was in territory That was 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 deep wilderness Real wilderness even now So Kamchatka which is the peninsula That comes out into the Pacific Kamchatka doesn't have a single road connecting it to the rest of Russia It's 500 volcanoes It's absurd in terms <laughs> of It's its sort of disconnected um, um, Location But yet my goodness There were some piano stories there The Kuril Islands which, which come off Like a sort of little line of ellipses off the end of Russia, there as well. You know, that was to, to find pianos there were, were, were spoke of the absolute conviction that the, um, that the USSR had to, to spread education into all the far reaches of empire. So, you know, the further I went into the wilder the place, um, uh, what seemed absurd became really really compelling storytelling um it's, it's same in the russian arctic you know why would a reindeer herder who a reindeer herding is all about moving with the food and the lichen for their reindeer why on earth when you only have what you need to survive on the back of your sledge would you sling a piano on the back so it's that kind of i, I like the absurd I'm drawn to the absurd, but I realized that I was also being um ignorant in my in my in saying absurd because these things mattered to them. And they didn't think it was absurd. They thought it was part of them, this instrument. Um, and so where they went, it went too. It is amazing,
0: isn't it, that you could only get that sense of the absurd with something so elephantine as a grand piano the idea of that you build that so wonderfully into the stories just the, the the impracticality of it trying to get these things out there by boat or sledge or goodness knows how and you know I, d- dragging my cello across london i used to get a taxi driver a day at least saying bet you wish you played the flute but uh, pianos <laughs> on sledges is a whole other level of complicated
1: <laughs>
0: but then again with a violin you know, um, Helena, there is is that portability and a a violin can be so much more light-footed so it can be traversing the world very easily just, you know, on someone's back and that's a whole different set of problems and opportunities, isn't
1: it? Yes, exactly. I was, um, one of the the stories in, in the book that I was very pleased when I discovered it was a chap called Tarizio who was end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And he was the first international violin dealer ever. And he simply took his violins, he put them all in a bag on his back and simply walked across the Alps from Northern Italy and to Paris Um, with this incredible little collection of violins. But of course, when he got to Paris, which was so sophisticated there he was with holes in his boots and dust all over his clothes and he was he was illiterate actually he was an illiterate connoisseur of violins and they really saw him coming he couldn't he didn't speak enough french to be able to um, bargain with them and so a dealer bought all his stock um, very very cheaply the next time he went to paris he arrived in beautiful suit and polished boots in a carriage and he'd already informed all the dealers that he was coming and there was a sort of bidding war for his instruments um but the whole question of worth I mean what I discovered really reflects the fact that violins exist within several different value systems and uh it's so odd, isn't it, an object that for one set of people is a tool, really, by which they make their living um, and they attribute worth to it. That's around how responsive it is to what they want to do, how quickly mm-hmm. it can respond, and the extent to which the the sound that it makes chimes with what they perceive to be their sound, their voice as a musician. You know, unless mm-hmm. you're a cello player. Um, but... Uh, Then you've got the the kind of dark market of investment, people are investing. But of course they, you know, it all crosses over because they very often will buy a violin to give it to a specific musician, a virtuoso. And each time there's a performance on that violin by this wonderful musician, actually its value is going up. So Yeah, and you... You touched on this idea of the the way that
0: instrumentalists will will value um, an instrument the way it chimes with perhaps the, the sound that that we might have in our heads. We, we know our ideal sound, our, our mm. musical voice, and when we find that matched, and in the same way as we build a relationship with someone, it is a kind of love at first sight or you know, the development of a relationship. That instrument speaks to us and it speaks for us, and it it enhances our you know, our ability to get that sound out to the to the rest of the world. So for a biographer coming upon instrument perhaps owned by someone who is long gone there is this this thing that holds something of their voice in the way that we might find a recording of someone speaking or or something in the way that a a handwritten manuscript might smell or the texture of it or the the shapes of the handwriting something of that person has been has been identified in the in the instruments it's They've even shaped it in the way that they play and the repeating patterns, the way that they've put pressure on the strings, all this kind of thing. So they've actually inhabited it in some way. What kind of amazing opportunity is that for a biographer? What, what do we find and what do we not find when we try and read a person into an
1: instrument? I think that the idea, and, and, and you so get it because you're, you're a cellist yourself, and it was a wonderful thing to me, the idea... Um, that I got from Florian Leonard, who, Mm -hmm. of course, is, is, you know, right at the top. He's a luthier himself, and he's also a dealer dealing in very, very top old Italian instruments and other instruments with really extraordinarily elevated pedigrees. And he described to me just what you're saying, that he sometimes sells an instrument or, or gives a musician an instrument to try that has been played by a very a specific musician beforehand who has, has a very powerful style of their own. And again and again, it's happened to him that the new musician will say, gosh, it's really strange. It feels like this violin is trying to make me play in a certain way. I've got to get beyond this. And of course, the, the, the whole way a violin works with the vibrations going through the cells in the wood, and so that it becomes accustomed to vibrating in that way. So, so it's a living object. Mm. And so, you know, as well as it being imprinted with the, the musical lives of many musicians, it also has that strange quality that, that really struck me the first time I, I picked up Lev's violin, because it's under such enormous pressure. Every bit of the structure is under pressure, isn't it? When, yeah. the, when the strings are up to tension so that it feels like picking up something that's alive it feels like it might take off out of your hands <laughs> and and strangely um also smells yeah you know the smell of a violin that's been played long and hard you know it smells of sweat it smells of people it's yeah. it's it's really powerful that smell and the and fin- the same finger time- marks
0: on the fingerboard and the the grubby rosin yes. marks and
1: yeah. Yes, and the, and the and the where the shoulders rubbed away at yeah. the shoulder and so
0: well, Sophia, some of those some of those elements that are very specific to string instruments are different for pianos I and mean, they can be furniture as well as a very personal relationship to the player they you know if you you go to do a recital somewhere you don't take your piano with you unless you're unless you're incredibly um, impressive in which case you might be able to afford to but generally you'll play the piano that's in the concert hall so there is a a slightly semi-detached relationship and of course different pianists create different individual sounds but I wonder and, and also the instruments deteriorate in value over time and in a way that string instruments don't tend to in the same way I wonder what that was like to negotiate that 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 sort of love affair that people have with their instruments, but also the the semi-detached nature of a piano?
2: Well, I think the semi-detached, there's a really nice story in uh, Richter, who in 86, he... He didn't like flying, and he flew. He decided he took he he went across by Siberia by train and 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 car, and he didn't take a piano with him. And he marked up on a dark blue marker on this map the route he was going to take, and he said where he was going to play. And they were like, "Oh, golly, I don't know what the piano is going to be like." Um, and so he, he would play in a dark room, and he would play on whatever he was given. And sometimes the piano was really not up to scratch. You know, in Siberia, we're talking about minus fifty. That's going to crack a soundboard. Uh, no problem. Uh, the, 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 the presence of tuners is not a given. Um, used to be, In the 19th century, you'd get tuners coming in from Warsaw to the back of beyond, but not now. Anyway, uh, Richter goes off on this trip and he would advertise um, he he was going to play in some sort of godforsaken little house of culture, which isn't even really a concert hall in some town you've never heard of on the the NSA or wherever it was. And uh, it would be full within the hour. It would be completely full within the hour. Such was the respect, the high level of musical education, the passion for the instrument, the passion for Richter. It would take an hour and it would be full to the brim. It was an extraordinary concert tour. It didn't matter that the instruments weren't always up to scratch. He talks about it. It's just amazing. It It was the thing that was bringing them together in spite of in spite of musical issues, in spite of um, in spite of a, a slightly faulty sound, and so again, I found that very empowering. That you know, this brilliant Soviet pianist, brilliant Soviet pianist, was capable of bringing things down to earth. Um, and if I learned something from from spending time in that part of the world, it was it was that this instrument that has you know this sort of great bourgeois thing called the piano that we in my country and certainly in Western Europe have been used to sort of, you know, um, being almost like a sort of a hallowed instrument that you can only see when you're dressed up and in a, in a grand space. Uh, forget it. There, it's an instrument of the people. It was a very, very critical part of an ed- education. You used to rent instruments and share them between a whole floor in one of these Soviet apartment blocks. They had their own state-subsidized piano-making industry, even in the Tsarist period, to distribute it out more widely, and then certainly during the Soviet period. So you've still got it going, and it's almost gone. But you've still got this level of musical education In remote parts of Russia That belong to that Soviet system Of democratised music Let everyone play it And it doesn't matter if the instrument isn't perfect And it doesn't matter if the instrument isn't a Bechstein uh, uh, Just let's hear it at its at its. Uh, let's hear it of what it's capable of And how it brings people together And that to me was why it Why the story in the end resonated for me It was Taking it down a peg and making it down to earth. Yeah, that's
0: so fascinating. We haven't even touched on the whole idea of sort of instruments and class, but they, it, as I say, it, it is a way of democratizing, and it's a way of democratizing the story as well, isn't it? It's if you're moved by music, then then you could be part of this story as well, um, whether yeah, you're just and listening I'm, or playing. I'm,
2: I'm always interested in the life stories of the underdog. I think you are too, Elena, and that to me, I love it.
1: Yes, and, I, and I, I, that word democratic, I mean, that's a word that I've used very much about Lev's violin. You know, it's a violin that has brought a quality of sound to people who, who couldn't have afforded an old Italian violin. And I love the idea that, that Sophie and I haven't been put off by the fact that we're not musicians, you know, that we've that we've stepped into this world that isn't ours. And I've been very encouraged by, you know, the fact that, that, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Sophie, that that actually the, the people who are embedded in that world find it fascinating to have an outsider's view.
2: Yes, no, I mean, I covered my tracks. I think the third line of my book is, I am not a musician, I am not a historian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I cover yeah. it off quite clearly. But, it. I, I mean, I, you say that. I also had responses from... Um, you know, from certain critics who did see me to, um, stepping into hallowed territory as a kind of, you know, I don't know where I'm going tomorrow travel writer. But I wasn't going to let that put me off because I think that love and obsession is love and obsession. And you don't have yeah. to have, um, <laughs> look, I wasn't trying to write an academic treatise tr- on tr- tr- on music. I yeah. was trying to tell human stories and everyone's got the right to tell and um, everyone's got the right to tell those human stories absolutely it is a it is a metaphor for for what you do
0: in a sense that you've used music to to bring these stories to people who would never have bought a travel book on Siberia you know, i have I have many friends who are professional musicians who've read both your books and really, really enjoyed them um, but who wouldn't have necessarily read a, a history of the violin or or anything to do with Siberian history and have been completely fascinated by both.
2: I, I'm really interested. Where do they shelf you in, in bookshops, um,
1: Helena? Um, well, last book, uh, travel. Um, I don't know what they'll do this time, whether they'll put it in travel again. What about you?
2: Well, I've noticed a, a, a real sort of um, uh, a confusion actually, yeah, uh, yeah, because it sits in a crossover space and yeah. um, bookshops are organized by genre and they don't like crossover. So it's kind of, I, I, I'm fascinated by it. And also in other international markets, you know, the, the, the Germans, for instance, very clearly put it in music, uh, the Brits more in travel, because we have a, a different history with travel writing. Yeah. Um, but I think it exposed, I asked the question because I think it exposes um, an opportunity uh, to of, of this space where travel is not just the a to z um, um writing about place or a journey or a quest but I think it becomes. A, I think it's a really interesting, ripe area that I'm seeing more and more writers engaging with, and in different ways. And but it does create a slight crisis in where they put you on a shelf.
1: In a yeah, well, a they book just shop. need to put us on a. They need to put us on a table at the front, Sophie. That'll do. <laughs> yeah.
2: All over the. Yeah, window. Yeah, mostly display. on the front. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. 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 <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both, Helena and Sophie. Thank you so much for for joining me. Um, your fantastic books that we cannot recommend highly enough, uh, Lev's Violin and the Lost Pianos of Siberia, are available all over bookshops on every shelf that you can possibly think of, <laughs> and uh, and we'll we'll make sure that we have a link to them both um, on this podcast as well. And Helena, you were telling me just before we started recording that there is a, oh, yeah. a crowdfunding campaign to try and restore Lev's under-pressure under, under pressure violin. Yes. D- tell us more about it. Yes, that's so
1: kind. I mean, it, it's not really a spoiler to tell you that by the end of the book, the violin is broken and needs restoring. And the idea is that it should be restored and that it will be loaned to exceptional students. Greg Lawson teaches at the Royal Conservatoire in Scotland. Any um, funds that we raise above the target, which is £10,000 to restore it and make it good for another 50 years or more, will go to a charity called Music for All, which is a charity that brings music-making to everybody, really, community music projects, school music projects. And so we feel we'd love to support them if we can.
0: If you want to be part of the next chapter of Lev's Violin's life, then uh, do do please get in touch with us. Fantastic. Well, Helena and Sophie, thank you so very much indeed. It's been a great privilege and great fun.
1: Thank you for joining us on Writing Lives, Biography and Beyond, a podcast by the Oxford Centre for Life Writing. Follow us on Twitter at Ox to
2: hear more about what we do.
0: And if you'd like to be more involved, access exclusive events and attend our virtual book club, then join our Friends Scheme. We also offer writing groups and mentoring to those working on their own life writing projects. You can find all the details on our website if you Google OCLW.